0: visit bankofamerica.com/bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA. Copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's been two decades since the end of the Yugoslav Wars, but Serbia is arming itself again with jets, missiles, tanks and drones. All of that is making its smaller neighbours a little anxious. We speak to Aleksandr Vucic, Serbia's president. And you might think of evolution as something that happens very slowly over millions of years. But new evidence from Mozambique suggests that animals can evolve at the pace of human conflict. The proof lies in some very special elephants. First up, though. Today, Apple will report its earnings there'll be just the latest in this round of quarterly results from the tech giants.
0: Good afternoon, my name is France, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Facebook third quarter 2021 earnings conference call. Welcome everyone, and thank you for standing by for the Alphabet Q3 2021 earnings conference call.
1: Good afternoon everyone, and welcome to Tesla's third quarter 2021 Q&A webcast. Revenues and profits for the five Western tech titans – that's Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, Apple and Microsoft – are expected to grow by around 30%, all told. That may sound like a lot, but it marks a significant decrease from last quarter's results, when profits grew by a colossal 90%. The slowdown is a sign of the degree to which the pandemic has changed the tech industry. But some have more reason for cheer than others – smaller tech firms have now begun to outperform the big five. The question is whether that new sense of competition can survive as life goes back to normal in much of the Western world.
2: So this tech earnings season has perhaps unsurprisingly shown that uh, big tech, the five biggest uh, US tech companies, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Microsoft, are still growing at a rapid clip, about 30% on average. That's a bit less than last quarter, but still quite impressive.
1: Ludwig Siegler is our US technology editor, and he's based in San Francisco.
2: But what we've also seen is that there's a smaller group, a few dozen tech companies that are growing even more rapidly. So yes, the pandemic has made big tech bigger, and that was kind of the prediction. But it also has made smaller tech bigger, which is perhaps more of a surprise. OK, let's
1: take those in turn, Ludwig. Why exactly have earnings for big tech firms slowed down?
2: It's quite normal, that things would slow down a bit. But there have been other factors, the overall economy, there have been changes in the advertising industry. Apple has changed its privacy policy on the iPhone, and that has had some impact on Facebook's earnings, for instance. So there's lots going on. But I think the general thrust here is that, yes, it had to come down somewhat. That's not a surprise.
1: And now let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned, those smaller tech
2: firms. What's happening there? So, What's happened during the pandemic is it's made the pie bigger for everyone. So it has shown that there are other big digital markets that are not dominated by one of the five big ones. In each of these markets, there have been other companies, mostly companies that have gone public recently that rule that space, rule that roost. And we have done a little calculation a few months ago. And so we tried to define what tier two tech companies could be. And we said, okay, these are companies that have a market cap of more than 20 billion. And they have been incorporated after the year 2000 we ended up with 42 companies that fulfill these criteria their companies most of them are not that well known i mean you have snowflake it's a data platform company or you have okta it's a identity management company and so if you add up the market cap of those 42 companies they made about 22% of the market cap of the gafa in early 2020 GAFA is the acronym for the five biggest US tech companies. So Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Facebook. And if you look at that share now, it's gone up to 31% of the market cap of the GAFA. And so that shows that these smaller tech companies have actually grown faster than the GAFA, at least when it comes to market cap. And why is that? I mean, there's lots going on. But I think uh, the main trend and the GAFA benefit from that too is that What the pandemic has done is kind of pulled forward the shift into the computing cloud. So already before the pandemic, a lot of computing moved into the cloud. A lot of what the experts call workloads were delivered, or the number crunching was done in big data centers and the services were delivered over the internet. And that trend has been accelerated by the pandemic and that has benefited the GAFA, but also a lot of the tier two tech companies because they are mostly cloud companies.
1: So is all of this to suggest that the growth of these tier two companies has made the tech sector more competitive?
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, before there was a certain ossification, you had these big five companies, the GAFA, and there was not much competition between them. I mean, they always say, yes, we compete. And the competition is always a click away. But the fact is that they never attacked each other, really, and especially not each other's core franchises, such as Search for Google or e-commerce for Amazon. And that has changed significantly during the pandemic. So you have Google, you have Microsoft, you have Amazon's AWS, Amazon Web Services, and they compete vigorously for market share. But you also have more competition from smaller companies. So if you look at Facebook, I mean, for the longest time, people were saying, oh, Facebook, it's so dominant, no other company can kind of, In danger, its fortress, and now you have companies like TikTok, which is usually popular among teenagers, and you have kind of a comeback of Snap, another social network, and so it's not clear how kind of stable Facebook's dominance is at this point.
1: And all of this competition—is it a good thing?
2: Yes, of course, competition. I mean, this is the Economist, so competition is always a good thing. But yes, you get better choice. People compete for better products. What could happen is that they actually compete in term kind of. better privacy policies, which is really important online, and Apple is doing that to some extent, but perhaps Apple's changed uh, privacy policy can put pressure on the others to change their privacy policies too. You also have competition over the fees the app store providers or operators like Apple and Google charge app developers. So so far it's been kind of up to 30% was the rule and now there's competition. Recently Google announced it will lower the fee for subscription-based apps in its app store to 15% so, yes, competition is a good thing, better products, lower prices.
1: So, Ludwig, where do you think things are heading for big tech and for tier two tech as life begins to head back towards normality?
2: So, yes, the cloud has gotten bigger, hardware is a bit more important, chips in particular. And the whole thing is more turbulent. There's more competition. And I think the first two trends may actually change relatively soon. And much more open question is what will happen to that competition. And optimists say that, yes, finally, we can see markets are working. There is now competition between those big companies and even between big companies and smaller companies. And the tech industry has now entered a new phase of vigorous competition. Pessimists would say that, actually, this is just a transitionary phase. The big guys will reassert themselves, they will consolidate the industry, they will compete unfairly. I don't know what the right answer is, but I think in this phase, what's really important that trustbusters, regulators don't let down their guard. I mean, the increase of competition is real and it has to be protected. Ludwig, thanks very much. Thanks for for having having me. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own
1: or operate a business
2: Bank of America, N.A., Copyright 2024.
1: Last month, Serbia and Kosovo were having a row. It was over car number plates, a very European dispute. But in response, Serbia flew warplanes over a border crossing, and it brandished armoured vehicles in a show of force. All of that might seem disproportionate, But the escalation spoke to simmering tensions between those countries, 13 years after Kosovo declared its independence. For Serbia's ex-Yugoslav neighbours, that sort of muscle flexing has set alarm bells ringing. In the wake of the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, Serbia's military capacity had decayed. But now, thanks to a spate of showy arms deals, it's been given a shot in the arm.
0: It's only just over a quarter of a century ago that Serbia was at war in Kosovo, it was at war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and it was at war in Croatia. Tim Judah is The
1: Economist's Balkans correspondent. He recently interviewed the president of Serbia, Aleksandr Vucic.
0: So if Serbia's armed forces are basically reviving from the dead, Serbia's neighbours and the peoples it was fighting against are going to be understandably nervous.
1: How substantial is Serbia's military revival, as you put it?
0: Between 2015 and 2021, Serbia's defence spending has jumped by some 70%. So that takes it to just over $1.4 billion. That's a big jump actually what's interesting is that Serbia's defense spending has been quite constant over the last 10 years at about two percent but as Serbia's economy has got bigger that means that there's been more money to spend and some of the things they've actually been getting for free for example Russia and Belarus gave the Serbian Air Force 10 mig-29 jets Russia also gave 30 tanks and armored personnel carriers and it sold it to an air defense missile system Serbia's been buying armed drones from China Russian Helicopters, French surface-to-air missile system. It might be buying Turkish drones. It might be buying Israeli spike missiles. It's been modernising and growing its armed forces, albeit with stuff from quite an eclectic group of countries, which is quite unusual.
1: That sounds like a lot of heavy metal. Why is it making all that investment now?
0: I saw Aleksandr Vucic, Serbia's president, and he just says that a modern army is the sine qua non of a modern state.
1: You have to have a modern army. If you analyse what Bulgarians, Romanians and Hungarians were buying in the recent times, these are peanuts. $1.4 billion sounds like a fairly modest amount, but this is a region of fairly small powers, isn't it?
0: It's less than countries like Romania or Hungary, which are in NATO. But the real comparison needs to be made with its own region. Serbia is spending more than all of the other Western Balkans, six countries combined, Bosnia, Montenegro, Kosovo, North Macedonia and Albania. Serbia does aim to be the leader of the Western Balkans. And I think there's a feeling that, you know, to be respected, to get what it wants, it needs to have a strong military, even if it's not really thinking that it would ever be uh, deployed or used.
1: Tim, as defence editor, I've watched over the years as pretty much all European countries have modernised their armed forces in the same way, really throwing a lot of money at their armies since... Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Is there something about the environment in the Balkans that makes this different?
0: I think that 2014 and Russia's intervention in Ukraine was a kind of wake-up call, because what it showed was that the era of conventional warfare in Europe was not over, that, you know, tanks and infantry still counted for something. Another reason, of course, is that this is all popular, because actually, in opinion polls, Serbs consistently say that the Serbian military is amongst the most trusted institutions in the country. And Mr Vucic, the president, comes from a nationalist background. So all of this plays well to his voters. Tensions are kept high through the tabloid press, which is constantly talking about a war with Albanians is coming soon and war with Croats is coming soon. So, you know, if you keep saying war is coming soon, well, then you probably need some equipment to go with it.
1: And there was an example last month, wasn't there, of how much things can escalate in such a volatile region with that row between Serbia and Kosovo over number plates. What exactly was that about and what signal did it send?
0: It was about whether people with a Kosovo number plate driving into Serbia needed to change their number plate and people from Serbia driving into Kosovo needed to change their number plate, both of which have state symbols on. And this got so heated that Serbia began flying MiG jets up and down the frontier between Serbia and Kosovo. This was actually termed military performance art because there wasn't much Serbia could do since Kosovo is... Security is uh, guaranteed by NATO, but when you do things like that over an argument about number plates, well, of course, people get nervous. President Vucic, when I asked him about this, he said very clearly that uh, none of the neighbors need to be worried. If I was in Kosovo, if I was uh, in Sarajevo, or even if I was in Croatia, I might think, why are they buying all this stuff they want to threaten us? That's what their perception might be. It's not it.
1: It's it's not their real perception. It's just what... uh Leibniz, German philosopher, used to say it's a sufficient either excuse or justification. They know that it's not against them. And so the upshot of all of this is that for the first time in many years, we're once again discussing military hardware, military capabilities and the military balance. And all of that sounds like it's not great news.
0: Well, it's not great news given the context and given the history of the region. And the fact is that a lot of the conflicts and the issues in Bosnia and in Kosovo in particular have not been settled. And over the last 10, 25 years, we've talked about European integration as the great panacea, the great thing which was going to sort of solve all of these issues and the, the, the region would become borderless within a borderless Europe. But now that promise looks ever further and further away. And that means that there's more scope for outside actors, that's to say especially Russia and China, the Gulf states and Turkey, to somehow meddle and get involved and to uh, promote their interests.
1: How serious could this all get, do you think? Those who recall the 1990s may feel a little bit jittery. Is all of this rearmament, all of this posturing a possible sign of a future conflict or is it just sort of harmless muscle flexing, do you think?
0: Well, it's always possible that something, in inverted commas, goes wrong. For example, in Bosnia, tension has risen. Milorad Dodik, the Bosnian Serb leader, has withdrawn all Bosnian Serb officials from state institutions and is making steps towards recreating a much more quasi-independent Republika Srpska, a kind of autonomous area within Bosnia, and talks about secession. And then he says that if somehow the Republika Srpska seceded and that, that, that there was violence, then he has implied that his friends have pledged that they would step in to defend it. And I don't think he meant by that, uh, Serbia particularly, but I think he meant Russia. And as people in Belgrade said to me, they thought that Russia would be very unlikely to step in to conflict in Bosnia. But if there was a new conflict in Bosnia and Herzegovina, governor, then it would be very difficult for Serbia to uh, stand apart. So, yes, this is something we need to keep an eye on.
1: Tim, thank you very much.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Go to the Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique and you might be met with a peculiar sight. With their giant flappy ears and their long trunks, the park's elephants might not seem out of the ordinary, at least at first glance. Yet many of them share a trait that was once very rare. They don't have tusks. The first day I was here in 2011, I met a group of 50 elephants, most of them were tuskless. Dr Joyce Poole is an elephant researcher based at the Gorongosa National Park. So, uh, I knew kind of straight away when I came here that, that there was a high proportion of tusklessness. The elephants are an unintended consequence of Mozambique's long history of conflict. What they reveal is how human behaviour can force drastic changes on a species in what amounts to an evolutionary blink of an eye.
3: Normally we think of evolution as something that happens over hundreds or maybe even thousands of years, particularly in big animals like people.
1: Tim Cross is The Economist's technology
3: editor. But what we have here is an example of it happening very, very quickly, like within a human lifetime, within even a few decades in a very big animal like elephants. And it's a particular population of elephants who live in a place called Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. And what's happened is over the past few decades, the number of female elephants without tusks has risen sharply.
1: And why do we think that is?
3: Well, the change coincides with the Mozambican Civil War, which lasted from 1977 to 1992. And one of the ways that the factions in that war paid for the guns and the ammunition was poaching basically, hunting elephants for their ivory. So our best guess is around 90% of the elephants that lived in the park in that time period were killed for their tusks. And so after the war was over, when it was sort of possible to travel there again, biologists noticed that the descendants of the small number of elephants that did survive the war, lots of them seemed to be tuskless, and particularly among the females. So that sparked this question, does that mean the Civil War caused it? Did it impose some strong evolutionary pressure for the descendants of the elephants that did survive to lose their tusks?
1: And have people managed to test that hypothesis now?
3: Well, that's what's just happened. So a biologist called Jane Campbell-Statton, who works at Princeton University, he spent his time searching through old video footage, old documents, records from the park and so on, and comparing it to modern populations. And he found that before the war, about 20% of the female elephants in Gorongosa lacked tusks. By the time it was over among their descendants, that number had risen to 50%, particularly for a species like elephants, which live quite a long time and breeds quite slowly. That's a very, very dramatic change in a very short space of time.
1: Do we understand how exactly that works at the genetic level, given, as you pointed out, evolution occurs over really long periods of time, I thought?
3: We do, and this is the other thing they've managed to disentangle. So it turns out that the key mutation is carried on the X chromosome, and elephants, like people, they use X and Y chromosomes to determine an individual's sex. So if you have two Xs, you're female. If you have an X and a Y, you're male. And an interesting quirk is the mutation that causes tusklessness comes as like a package deal, right? So this gene is altered and there are also alterations in the sort of adjacent DNA. Those alterations interfere with embryonic development, which means that if you are a male elephant embryo and you have one X chromosome only and you get this mutated X chromosome, the embryo will die uh, before it can be born. If you're female and you get one mutated copy of the X chromosome and one non-mutated copy... You won't die before you can be born, but you will grow up to be tuskless. The upshot of all that is all of the males in Gorongosa still have their
1: tusks, but only about half the females do. So has that genetic change stuck around after the war? It's been over for a while. Are tuskless elephants still on the rise? They're still around, but they're not on the rise. And this is
3: another sort of piece of evidence that this is really an evolutionary change. So the frequency peaked at about 50% when not having tusks was a big advantage because it meant there was no ivory to hunt you for, so you were much less likely to be shot by humans. Now that the civil war is over, tusks seem to have gone back to being something useful. They use them to do things like strip bark off trees or dig for water holes and so on. And so we're watching the frequency drop again. Among the most recent generation, it's down already to about 33% from around half. So the evolutionary imperatives have changed again and we're seeing the elephants respond again.
1: Tim, thanks very much. Thanks, Shashan. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. with Good credit. If you own or operate a business